proceed with haste to Kinko's Cappadocia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, actually, yeah, no, this is exactly the opposite of what Actually, I think the Kinkos was in Derby at the time, or, or Lystra. Is that I'm not what sure it was? About Cappadocia. It might have been. Lydia, I'm not, I'm not sure. Lydia was running the Kinkos. It was all purple yeah, paper. Uh, yeah. I don't think Kinkos then was like Starbucks now, and you could find one in every, you know, uh, Asia, you know hamlet in Asia Minor. But I don't anyway. think you could find a Kinkos today. Hello and welcome to another bodacious episode, I had to use a California word for Ken, of On the Journey. And uh, of course, I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network, and we hope that you like what you're hearing. Please do visit us at chnetwork.org to find out more about our apostolate that works with people who are interested in the Catholic faith or maybe have become Catholic and need some uh, pep talks or fellowship along the way. And you can also come check us out in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. However you got here, we're glad to have you and hoping for a, a fun conversation today. Ken, how are you? I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm pretty energetic, actually, so I hope I don't t- speak too quickly. Well, that's good. We'll, Slow we'll, myself down. We'll rein you in. I, I was thinking about this because we're going to talk about uh, the importance of tradition. I've been thinking uh, a lot about how we think of written versus spoken versus learned tradition Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, today compared to how the people that we're going to talk about later on this this show would have thought about such things. You know, today if you were to start a small business like a weed whacker repair repair shop, like mm-hmm. Ken's Weed Whacker Repair, the mm-hmm. amount of paperwork you would have to do just to yeah. start your little weed whacker repair shop would be <laughs> st- file cabinets full, and no such kind of w- approach existed in the era of the church that we're going to talk about. It's not like you had to si- sign forms and triplicate to get anything done. So no, no. tradition was a big thing. And, uh, and that's kind of yeah. what we're on today, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, w- what we've been doing and, and you're right, I wouldn't be able to start a weed whacker business because there's a snail darter that lives in the corner of my office. Mm. And anyway, wouldn't um, whack him. What are we talking? Okay, we've been talking about. <laughs> you got me going now. Okay, the series title is Scripture, Tradition, and Magisterium. We've been talking about Scripture and tradition. We're going to move ever so, uh, you know, um, elegantly, I hope, into Magisterium. But that's what we're talking about. And I want to begin by reading again paragraph eighty from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which states the following: Sacred tradition and sacred Scripture are bound closely together and communicate one with the other, for both of them flowing out from the same divine wellspring, the same source, the apostolic teaching, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Okay, last week we looked at how sacred scripture and sacred tradition function together in the Catholic worldview to provide the church with a knowledge of the apostolic faith. On the one hand, scripture informs the doctrine, life, and worship of the church, in other words, the tradition. Scripture informs the tradition. On the other hand, the tradition functions as an interpretive key to the meaning of Scripture. 
If the inspired writings, if you will, if the inspired writings are the light of God's special revelation to us, the light of God's inspired revelation in Scripture to us, tradition functions as the lens through which the light is brought into focus. That is, the doctrine, the life, the faith of the early church functions as a lens through which the light is brought into focus. Now, Matt, this would have all sounded, when I was a Protestant, this would have sounded like complete and sheer insanity to me during my 20 years as an evangelical Protestant. I would have responded, and I'm sure you would have too, look, God has given us his inspired word. I've got the Bible. This is something that I can trust. What in the world would induce me to trust this thing that you call tradition, um, you know, that is handed on within the church, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, and again, I, I would have said the same thing, and I would have been maybe even more conditioned to say so because, mm-hmm. uh, as we talked about before, in the 1984 edition of the New International Version, you had this situation where the word tradition, when used in a positive way, was translated teaching, but every time the word tradition, every time it was translated tradition, it was in a negative connotation. So even just the idea of tradition at all, yeah. Yeah, would have been repellent to me. Yeah, the, the NIV was just making a, a doctrinal statement by that. You know, the, the Greek word paradosis appears, and if they like the context, they would call it teaching. It's the teaching. If they saw it as one of the negative passages, like Jesus speaking against the tradition of the Pharisees, then they would translate it tradition. Um, but that's not how it appears in the New Testament, as we're going to see. Okay, well, you know, I would have thought all this was complete nonsense before, and obviously I don't think that way anymore. Um, Today, what I want to do is begin making the case for the church's view of Scripture and tradition and how the two function together. Uh, We've taught it. We've kind of laid it out. We've explained it. I want to begin making the case. And what I want to do to start is to focus on how reasonable the Catholic position is. That's what I want to talk about today, just how reasonable it is, given what we see in the New Testament and given what we see in the early church and reading the early church fathers. And so I want to make a number of points. The first one is this, a kind of a cumulative case. It makes sense. I mean, apart from anything taught in the Bible, it makes sense to think that the apostles would have wanted the churches they founded to hold fast to everything they had taught them, whether by word of mouth or in writing, It makes sense they would have wanted the churches to do this. In fact, that they would have expected the churches to do this. That's point number one. And we know that they did. First of all, we know this from St. Paul in his statement in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, the classic statement, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Okay? Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he just states this bluntly. Whatever I taught you, the traditions you have received, whether it was by word of mouth when I was with you or by letter now as I'm writing to you, I command you to hold fast to them, hold firm to them. Okay? So Paul says it here. But we see the same attitude expressed in what Paul says to Timothy in his last epistle. And we've treated this when we were talking about um, Sola Scriptura, but it has to be treated again here. In 2 Timothy, Paul appears to be preparing for his soon departure from the world. At least he appears to think that his soon departure is near, that his departure is near. Paul wants to make sure that his teaching is preserved. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, gather together all of the letters that I have written Make a stack of copies. <laughs> you know, and, and, Proceed with haste to Kinko's Cappadocia. Yeah, 
I mean, well, actually, yeah, no, this is exactly the opposite of actually, what Actually, I says. think the Kinkos was in Derby at the time, or, or Lystra. Is that I'm not what sure it was? Might have been. Lydia, I'm not, I'm not sure. Lydia was running the Kinkos. It was all purple uh, paper. Yeah. I don't think Kinkos then was like Starbucks now, and you could find one in every, you know, uh, Asia, you know, Hamlet in Asia Minor. But I don't anyway, think you can find a Kinkos today. Okay, but the point is, Paul wants to make sure his teaching is preserved, and so this is what he says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, which is a weird thing to say. Timothy, follow this pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. doesn't say anything about his writings. And then he says, guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Now, whether he means guard it by the Holy Spirit or whether he's saying this truth was entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit, either way, he's not saying guard it by getting copies. All you need to do is get accurate copies of what I've written and what the other apostles are writing and you'll have all the truth. You'll have it right there. Instead, he says, follow the pattern of sound words, what you've heard from me, guard the truth by the Holy Spirit, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me, again, th that word heard, before many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Notice that these were, I mean, notice, Matt, what these words evidence to us about Paul's mindset. Because Paul, Paul wrote a great deal, and yet he's not thinking about his writings at all. In this context, where he's giving Timothy encouragement and commandment as to what he should do to make sure that his teaching um, survives him, he wants him to hold fast to everything Timothy has learned by word of mouth or in letter, to guard it and to pass it on to those that Timothy will ordain. That, that's what he's referring to, surely by faithful men who will be able to do the same. Yeah, so, and not to get into the weeds too much here either, uh, but in order to believe that we don't trust the tradition, there's also this assumption that that church no longer exists and that it fell away or apostatized mm -hmm. or got way off the track really early. But the question that if you'd press me on, I wouldn't know how to answer is, well, how early? Because, you know, if I said, well, after the death of the last apostle, then I have to say, well, Timothy got this letter from Paul and is like, well, not going to mm -hmm. do that. <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Um, that's what you have to assume. Or you have to at least be of the mind that maybe Timothy did follow through with this. And so I believe what? Timothy did follow through and the early church fathers think he did too. But okay, we're focusing on the mindset. I mean, Paul's mindset is important and Paul's mindset does not appear to be a mindset of um, once I'm gone, what I've written is the only way you're going to know what I taught. So please get some copies, get them quickly. That's not his mindset. And Paul is someone who wrote a great deal. What about those apostles who didn't write a great deal, the apostles who wrote maybe just a little bit to the churches they had founded. What about those apostles who never wrote anything? At least there's nothing that's been preserved. What about the fact that St. Paul trusts Timothy enough yeah. to say, you know what, I'm not going to write all this down. You know me, I know you. We yeah. know this pattern yeah. of sound words. I trust you to do this. Yes. It's and, a huge and statement for Paul. And all this to support the point that the apostles clearly wanted and expected the churches they founded and Paul, Timothy, to hold fast to everything that they had been taught, whether by word of mouth or in letter. That's clear. Yeah, and you're right. He sees that in Timothy, too. He expects Timothy to hold it. He doesn't write it down for Timothy. Okay, second point is this. It also makes sense to think that the churches would read the letters that were sent to them 
in the light of what they already knew. I mean, that just makes sense. They would read the letters sent to them by apostles in the light of what they already knew from the teaching they had received when they were founded as churches. In other words, that the tradition would function as an interpretive key to the writings they received. Um, In other words, applying this to the Thessalonian Christians, when the Thessalonian Christians received Paul's two very brief letters that he wrote to them, they would have read those letters in the light of everything that they already knew from Paul's time with them, preaching, teaching, giving example. And we, we also know that they did. And so th- this is something that is clear from the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul refers to a character that he describes as the man of sin, okay? One of the passages in the New Testament that deals with the coming Antichrist. Paul says, uh, he refers to this man of sin who is to, to be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, listen to what Paul says next. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you this? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. And it's that last sentence that is most interesting to me. You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Students of the New Testament, as you know, have spent the last 2,000 years speculating on what Paul was talking about when he said, and you know what is restraining him now. You know, what is restraining him? Is it the Holy Spirit? Uh, Is it the church? Is it this or is it that? 2,000 years of speculation as to what Paul meant. But the Thessalonians know, they knew what Paul meant. And so Paul is basically saying to them, well, I could go on and I could spell this out to you Um, But I don't need to because I told you when I was with you. Okay, in other words, the Thessalonian Christians were able to read Paul's words in in this passage here in the light of what they already knew. What they already knew functioned as an interpretive key to what Paul was saying here. Even though we don't understand now, even though that's lost to us, we don't know what the tradition was on that one exact point. Um, They knew. And all of this reminds me of what we read last week in J.N.D. Kelly's classic Early Christian Doctrine, where he said, Scripture and Scripture and the church's unwritten tradition, the teaching of the church, were identical in content, both being vehicles of the revelation from the apostles. If tradition was for them a more trustworthy guide, this is not because it comprises truths other than those revealed in Scripture, but because the true tenor of the apostolic message is there unambiguously set out. And the application of it of this to the Thessalonians is clear. They knew unambiguously what was restraining the man of sin so that he wasn't being revealed. And because of that, Paul Paul is able to say, well, we'll just skip that part because you remember when I was with you, I told you. Okay? Sounds good to me. And, and also, again, uh, there's a sense in which Paul has a trust that the Thessalonians are already going along with all these other traditions that he put in place with them, and there's this level of trust that he doesn't have to explain not only that, mm-hmm. but a whole bunch mm-hmm. of other things mm-hmm. that are not in the letters to the Thessalonians. Again, right. these are occasional letters. They are not manuals on how to run a church. That kind of stuff was given to them when Paul was with them. Yeah, and so you're dead right. And so there are 
10, 20, 30 doctrines that he doesn't even refer to in those letters because he's writing to them for a specific reason. He's not, so you're right, he's trusting them to keep the rest. Okay, so point one was, it's, it, it simply makes common sense that the apostles would have wanted the churches they founded to stand firm and hold to the traditions they had received, whether by word of mouth or in writing. Point two, it makes sense that that when the churches received letters, that they would have read those letters in the light of what they knew, of what they already knew. In other words, that what they knew already from the preaching, the teaching, the example of the apostles would have functioned as a lens, um, as an interpretive key to what was written. Okay, the third point I want to make is this. It also makes sense to think that years later, when disputes arose and when the apostles were no longer around to sort those disputes out, it makes sense that the church would look for the truth, not only to the letters the apostles had written them, but to the faith of the churches the apostles had founded. And again, we happen to know from the early church fathers that they did. And on this point, Matt, you know, I could read from scads of early church fathers and we could go off for a long time here. Um, but I want those listening, those uh, watching, please just catch the mindset catch the, the, the thought world in which the early church fathers were operating by, uh, as I read portions from three of the most prominent writers of the second and third centuries. First, we have St. Irenaeus writing around 189 AD in his book Against Heresies. So that, that's the subject he's got in mind, and that is how to deal with heretical points of view. Listen to what he said. As I said before, the church having received this preaching and this faith from the apostles, although she is disseminated throughout the world, yet she guarded it as if she occupied but one house. There's Paul saying to Timothy, guard it by what you've heard by the Holy Spirit. She likewise believes these things just as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart. And harmoniously she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down as if she possessed but one mouth. For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition is one and the same. For the churches which have been planted in Germany do not believe or hand down, they don't hand down, that's the word tradition there, paradosis to hand down something, that's what it means. They do not believe or hand down anything different, nor do those in Spain, nor those in Gaul, nor those in the East, nor those in Egypt, nor those in Libya, nor those which have been established in the central region of the world, Rome. But as the sun the creature of God is one and the same throughout the whole world, so also the preaching of the truth shineth everywhere and enlightens all men that are willing to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the only way that Spain and Germany and the Middle East and the center of the world, Rome, are all on the same page with this is that when the apostles went out and they trusted people to preach and carry things on that means that the people that sent actually did that yeah the tradition worked yeah and that's they, at least by the time of saint irenaeus it was still working in 189 a.d by that time saint irenaeus is able to say essentially that what the church has heard from us they did guard by the holy spirit and they have passed it on to faithful men who were able to teach others and so whether you're in gaul southern france or you're all the way in libya or egypt or whatever the tradition is the same, he's saying. Just like Paul asked Timothy to do. Yes. 
Okay, and then just a couple of chapters later in his in the same work, Against Heresies, he writes this, It is not necessary to seek among others the truth which is easily obtained from the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her most copiously everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone who ever wishes draws from her the church, the drink of life. What then, if there should be a dispute over some kind of question? Ought we not have recourse to the most ancient church? You know, if there should be a dispute, ought we not have recourse to the Bible and like start throwing verses at each other backwards and forwards? Yes, they believed in the Bible. They believed it, it, it to be inspired and infallible. But just notice his mindset. If there's a dispute, ought we not have recourse to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were familiar and draw from them what is clear and certain in regard to that question? Okay, we also have Tertullian in his work, Prescription Against Heresies. Again, it's written about heretical movements, written around 200 AD from Rome. This is what Tertullian says. Moreover, if there be any heresies bold enough to plant themselves in the midst of the apostolic age so that they might seem to have been handed down by the apostles because they were from the time of the apostles. Okay, so he's saying these heretics attempt to plant themselves and they, they attempt to say, hey, what we're teaching is what the apostles were teaching from the beginning, okay? So they're pretending to have come from the time of the apostles, they're teaching. This is what Tertullian says. Let them show the origins of their churches. Let them unroll the order of their bishops, running down in succession from the beginning so that their first bishop shall have, have for author and predecessor some one of the apostles or of the apostolic men who continued steadfast with the apostles. Then let all the heresies offer their proof of how they deem themselves to be apostolic. And again, his mindset, he, he's not saying, here's how you offer proof that your teaching is apostolic by going to the New Testament and piling up verses. Instead, he says, let them go back and show who founded their church. Let them show us the role of bishops in succession from the apostles or one of the apostolic men down to the present. It, it's the mindset that we're talking about here. It's the yeah. mindset we're getting at. And it's also important to note that in AD 200, you're still close to 200 years before the Bible is going to, the New Testament is going <laughs> yeah. to be compiled in a single book. And there's no evidence that we have that every single one of these churches had all the books that would one day be considered part of the New Testament. Yeah. In fact, we know that they didn't. Um, but that's something I simply assert here and, uh, we'll, we'll come we'll back to show it later. later, but yeah, it, I mean, it's a very good point. There's 200 years before the, com before the canon is compiled in a way that is, uh, that is, um, to be applied to to everyone. To the universal okay. church, yeah. One more quote. Finally, here's Origen writing around 225 AD. So we have 189, we have 200, 225 now from Alexandria, Egypt. This is from his preface to uh, his work called The Fundamental Doctrines. The teaching of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles and remains in the churches even to the present time. That alone is to be believed as truth which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. Okay, it is not the case that the church fathers took tradition to be more authoritative than Scripture. In fact, as inspired, uniquely inspired, Scripture was held to be more authoritative than tradition in terms of its ontological status. It was the inspired Word of God. It was infallible. Prima Scriptura was held and is true. The problem 
is not whether scripture or tradition, you know, which one holds ontologically the the higher status. The problem, the difficulty, as J. and D. Kelly puts it in his work, Early Christian Doctrines, and I'm reading from him now, the problem was that heretics were liable to read a different meaning out of scripture than the church. So the difficulty was that was one of interpretation. And that's why we come to Saint one more early church father in Saint Your buddy, Vincent, Saint Vincent of Lorenz, who Saint Vincent Lorenz, of Lorenz. Who, yeah, he was dealing he with, with the, the same he, he was dealing with this exact same issue in the fifth century. In fact, when he wrote his work, The Commonatorium in AD four thirty four, so we're going later now, he wrote it specifically to offer guidance on the question how can we distinguish true Catholic orthodoxy, true Catholic teaching, from the false teaching of heretics? And, and so, yeah, here's his Dr. Seuss passage um, that is wonderful to behold. Listen to what he says. If one should ask one of the heretics, what ground have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church? He has a ready answer, for it is written. Okay, just quickly, before I read on, again, you made the point that by the time of Irenaeus in 189, Apparently, the faith had been held to and transmitted. Same with 200, same with 225 with Origen. Now we're in the middle of the 5th century, and St. Vincent is able to refer to something that he, that he calls the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church. He's able to refer to a body of doctrine, a teaching, as the ancient, uh, the, the universal, the universal an ancient faith, as Irenaeus said about nothing different in Gaul, nothing different in Libya, nothing different in Syria or in Rome. He's able to refer to that. And he says, if you should ask one of the heretics, what ground have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church? He has a ready answer, for it is written. And forthwith, he produces a thousand examples, a thousand authorities from the law, from the Psalms, from the apostles, from the prophets, by means of which, interpreted on a new and wrong principle, the unhappy soul may be precipitated from the height of Catholic truth to the lowest abyss of heresy. Do heretics appeal to Scripture? They do indeed, and with a vengeance. For you may see them scamper through every single book of Holy Scripture, whether among their own people or among strangers, here's the Dr. Seuss part, in private or in public, in speaking or in writing, at convivial meetings or in the streets, you know, uh, in a tree or, you know, with, with a, a flea. Or a flea. Hardly ever do they bring forward anything of their own, of their teaching, which they do not endeavor to shelter under the words of Scripture. You will see an infinite heap of instances, hardly a single passage of their writings, which does not bristle with plausible quotations from the New Testament. In other words, put this together. If the church wasn't practicing sola scriptura, and we certainly don't see that mindset in Paul or in Irenaeus, or in Tertullian, or in Origen, or in St. Vincent, if the church wasn't practicing Sola Scriptura, the heretics appear to have been practicing Sola Scriptura and practicing it with a vengeance. And St. Vincent presents this as the problem. Because it's one thing to declare the writings of the apostles to be inspired and infallible. It's another thing to determine exactly what these writings are teaching in terms of doctrine. And the heretics, St. Vincent, as he describes them, the heretics were masters at gathering together passages from the Bible to support every conceivable doctrinal position. They could pull out, you know, what does he say? You can't read a page of their writings that does not bristle 
with plausible quotations. And the problem, Matt, is that this is still the case. This is still how it is. This is why we have so many denominations and sects and independent churches within the Protestant world, because even the brightest, I mean, even the smartest pastors out there, even the most holy pastors out there who study and pray all day long and ask the Holy Spirit to guide them, cannot agree on what the Bible is teaching. They may agree that the Bible is inspired and authoritative, but they can't agree on what it's teaching. And and this comes back to what St. Vincent is saying at the end. It says that uh, their writings bristle with plausible quotations. Mm-hmm. And this is why Sola Scriptura is so dangerous. It's because every single one of those, if you listen to a persuasive person articulating it, you can let, you can say, you know what? I can see that. Yes. I can see that. Because these people are not setting out to distort the Scriptures intentionally. They're setting out to seek yeah. the meaning of the Scriptures. And that's why when they get passionate and they get on a tear about it, you know, they are convinced that this is the take uh, on any number of doctrines, from whether or not we have free will to whether or not baptism saves to whether or not, uh, you know, all sin is the same or some sin is bigger than others. So, to, I mean, I've, I've heard people say, uh, and this is for real, that, you know, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me, as what Jesus' way of saying, don't worry about helping the poor. Yeah, well, that's yeah. plausible in that context, unless you read the other parts of Jesus' message where you are supposed yeah. to help the poor. It's You can put whatever spin you want on it based on your emphasis, and if you're passionate enough, if you can get others to go for it. If you're passionate and you've become committed to a way of looking at the Bible and how to put the message all together— then yeah, you can present plausible quotations for everything. I mean, I think about a really smart Jehovah's Witness coming into the home of a of let's say a Catholic who's has who hasn't been formed very well, and just saying, you know, you know, pages bristling with plausible quotations. Hey, Jesus says here that the Father is greater than I. What do you mean that he was God? Or Jesus says here, no one knows the day or the hour of the second coming. I don't even know the day or the hour. The Son of Man doesn't even know. Only the Father in heaven. Or why do you call me good? There is one good, God alone. I mean, you, you, you can pull out plausible quotations to support the idea that Jesus was not God. Okay, so how does Vincent answer the problem then? You know, the problem of the fact that the Bible is a gigantic book that there are thousands and thousands of verses and that there are plausible, plausible quotations. You know, you go all the way from possible to plausible to probable to, you know, positively true quotations from the Bible to, to support any manner of doctrinal innovation. How does Vincent answer the problem? This is what he says. Therefore, it is very necessary on account of so great intricacies of such various errors that the rule for the right understanding of the prophets and apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and Catholic interpretation, which apparently still exists in the mid-fifth century as far as St. Vincent is concerned. It still exists. Okay, so let's tie this together and move into our our, our final major point. We're we're talking about how the Catholic position on Scripture and tradition makes sense. It makes sense then that the apostles would have wanted their churches to hold fast to what they had received, whether by word of mouth or in writing. It makes sense that the churches would have read the letters that they received in the light of everything they already knew. 
that 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 what they knew the tradition would have functioned as an interpretive key for them that makes sense and it makes sense that as time went by and the disputes arose and the apostles were no longer around to settle them it makes sense that the church in seeking the truth would have looked not simply to what had been written but to the faith and practice of the churches which the apostles had founded and then finally and this is where we kind of move forward and where we need to go next week and the weeks beyond. Finally, it makes sense to think that when important doctrinal disputes had to be resolved, it makes sense that the church would have looked to its ordained leadership, especially the bishops, to make the decision as they met in council to reflect on scripture, to reflect on the tradition, and to seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. It makes sense to think that this is what, how the church would have functioned. First of all, this makes sense because you remember Acts chapter 15. We talked about it a lot when we were dealing with Sola Scriptura. This is precisely the model that they, would have, that they were given in the New Testament. Acts 15, the question arises, really the first serious theological dispute of Christianity. The question arises, do Gentile converts need to be circumcised and become Jews in order to be saved. The elders of the church, the apostles, the bishops, the leaders of the church meet in Jerusalem. They hashed out an answer and they wrote a letter which reads an awful lot like a decree, which began with those important words, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and they gave their answer. And we do not read that the church has said, well, you know, chapter and verse, prove it to us. Instead, what we read is the church has received this letter with joy that the issue had been, had been settled. So th this is the model that the early church would have had to look at when it came ta time to settle disputes that were important and that had to be resolved. This is the model, first of all. Yeah, it's, it's the model in so many ways. I'm just thinking of so many examples off the top of my head as well that illustrate that to, to greater or lesser degrees. <clears throat> Scripture alone, um, reading of the Old Testament alone, would not have been sufficient for anyone to understand the gospel, obviously, mm -hmm. because even the apostles had to, after the resurrection, have it re-explained to them yes. by Christ. <laughs> the disciples on the road to Emmaus had to have it re-explained to them with the light of their experience of the resurrected Christ. Now they can go and say to all these people who maybe knew the writings that we call the Old Testament today, this is what they actually mean, right? We mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. spoken to God himself. <laughs> he has told us how to understand these things. Or the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who is reading from, what was it, the passage from Isaiah? And he's yeah. like, I, I am moved by this. I'm cut to the heart, but I don't know. I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it or what it means. Yeah. Uh, and so here comes Philip the deacon, who is part of the apostolic band, right? He's been formed and connected with the apostles, and he has the interpretation. So we see this in a hundred different ways. Um, yes, yes. So, so again, as time went by and the apostles are no longer around, and important theological issues arise, heretical movements and whatnot, issues that have to be, that they cry out for resolution, they have to be resolved, it makes sense that the churches would have looked to the bishops to follow the example of Acts chapter 15 and these other examples you've, you've raised and meet together to decide the issue, okay? That makes sense. 
But And I'm saying that it makes sense because this was the model they had in the New Testament. But it also makes sense because the alternatives don't. The alternatives simply don't. I mean, what are the alternatives to an authoritative church where the bishops meet in council to decide these important issues? I mean, what is the alternative? Um, does each Christian study the Bible and pray and decide for himself? Does each father study the Bible and pray and decide for his family what the true doctrines of the faith are? Um, does each pastor study and decide for his congregation? Uh, do the pastors in each Christian city study together and decide for that city? Well, Irenaeus um, says no, right? Because the pastors in all those cities are speaking the same thing in Germany and Gaul and Spain and North Africa. That's and what I mean. Else. It gets bigger and with bigger and one, bigger. That's what I mean. The bigger it gets, they're still speaking with one mouth. Yeah, do the kings of each country decide? I, I'm thinking of a couple of illustrations. I mean, Calvin's Geneva. When Calvin set up his rule in Geneva, um, his doctrine became the doctrine of the city. And if you didn't agree with that doctrine, you had to leave the city. You had to go, you had to take off, go move somewhere else. Okay? And in Germany after the Reformation, there were princes and kings in Germany that simply said, My whole area is Lutheran now. So, my, my point is, it makes sense following the pattern of the New Testament, but it also makes sense because none of the alternatives make sense to say that the church would have looked to the bishops to meet and counsel and decide together what the situation was. Now, it's simply an historical fact, as you and I know, that in the 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, which was founded on the, uh, on the fundamental belief in sola scriptura, scripture is a sole infallible rule for us, and the right of each Christian to decide, the right of private judgment, Protestantism has fragmented into a vast, vast array of denominations, sects, independent movements of all kinds, representing really every possible combination of doctrinal positions. Over time, I mean, this is kind of my quick experience, Matt, but over time, while I was still a Protestant, I was coming to see that Protestant, Protestantism as a system of thought really has no answer to the problem of division within the body of Christ. Um, you know, it can continue to insist that the Bible is clear and that if we only studied hard enough or we only studied the right way, then we could all agree. Um, or it could say, it could take the position, which is very popular these days, that it just doesn't matter that we're divided um, it doesn't matter that we exist in thousands of denominations with different doctrines that we're stealing sheep from one another. That it doesn't matter. But it, it has no answer to how the church could be one church on the basis of sola scriptura and the right of private judgment. It, it has no answer. The fact of the matter is, is that if you go with scripture alone and reject the tradition, then you have ultimately come to a position where you have decided even what scripture applies and what does not because you mm -hmm. don't have a tradition to even tell you yeah um that this book that you're using as your sole authority needs to be read in every aspect of it of its of its teaching you get to decide you and, and in deciding mm -hmm. you have created a new tradition of how yeah. that passage should be understood uh it's it's a yeah it's a very frustrating loop and especially if you're looking for christian unity you you find yourself just like it's like nailing jello to the wall, man. There is no foundation mm -hmm. for unity without 
an appeal to some sort of tradition that is true. The best you can say is, I've read this a hundred times, and I think this is what it says. Yeah, in fact, when you use the word loop, you you spark something in my mind. I remember in seminary talking about what we call the hermeneutical circle, um, and and how the hermeneutical hermeneutics meaning the science of interpretation, and how the hermeneutical circle works. It works kind of like this. You know, I I'm a young man. I go into a Baptist church. I hear them presenting some of the good passages that support a Baptist theology, and I begin to buy into the worldview. And then because I buy into the worldview, when the difficult passages are presented to me, I start to read those difficult ones in the light of the clear ones they taught me. And so it's a, it's a self-supporting, self-reaffirming hermeneutical circle I'm in. And the Presbyterian does the same thing. Lutheran does the same thing. Methodist does it. So you have a bunch of hermeneutical circles out there where no one really has done a completely objective assessment of all the verses in the Bible, you know. No. Everyone everyone has kind of seen some clear ones from a certain perspective, gotten a, a grid, a hermeneutical circle in their minds, and begun to read the rest through that circle. So on the basis of the Bible alone and the right of every person to decide, there's no answer to the question of division. And And I also came to see that Protestantism ultimately has no answer to the problem of uncertainty. Um, how can we know what the true teachings of Christianity are when we have all these denominations, brilliant teachers in each one of them, telling us something different? Many modern evangelicals, and I'm, I know you know this, I'm sure you know this, many modern evangelicals, though, have completely thrown in the towel on the whole idea that, that we can know. And they've embraced a what I describe as so long as we love Jesus, none of the rest even matters kind of theology. Well, that would be just fine, except for that some of you believe that you must be baptized to be saved, and some of yeah. you don't. Um, yeah, and some believe you can lose your salvation. Some believe, some believe you that you have free believe. will, and some believe and some. that you have no choice in the matter. God has either elected you for salvation or he hasn't. I mean, these are not small issues no. that no. divide. Um, but because sola scriptura and the right of private judgment has no answer and everyone, it leads to uncertainty, then uh, sincere believers in Christ have to do something and, and they have to say, well, maybe then uncertainty is fine. Maybe none of it matters. And yet this is not the Christianity we see in the New Testament. We don't see this Christianity of nothing matters except love Jesus. And it, it's not the Christianity of the apostolic age. It's not the Christianity... Um, that existed for 1,500 years until the time of the Protestant Reformation. Nor does it even make sense, again, to drag out that phrase for the 15th time. And this is what I mean by saying it doesn't make sense. What would be the point of the Holy Spirit leading the apostles into all the truth, Jesus said, so that they could lead the church into all the truth, so that we could stand here now and agree that none of us can really know whether the Baptists are right or the Presbyterians or the Methodists or the Lutherans or the Nazarenes or the Church of Christ or the Anglicans. You know, none of us can really know whether any of them are right. In fact, I kind of think this charismatic pastor down the road who has a whole new way of putting the things together may be right. And now are you following him well, because he's charismatic theologically or charismatic as in? Theologically, you know, I mean, he's a charismatic guy to. who speaks well and is very attractive, both? very smart. Charismatic, okay, but what, but what, and what would be the point? What would be the point in the Holy Spirit leading the apostles to all the truth, so that they could lead the church to all the truth? That'd be so that now we can stand here and say it doesn't matter. 
That'd be the Holy Spirit leading us to the Tower of Babel. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And we all know yeah. what is Pentecost, but the reversal <laughs> of the Tower of Babel. It is all these, yes. the Babel, it, it, in the Tower of Babel, you see the language is confused. In Pentecost, you see everyone able to hear in their own language. You're telling me that after that, the Holy Spirit wants to confuse our languages again immediately? No, you're making a you're making a brilliant point. The bells will start ringing. You're making a brilliant point, and it's making me think something that I almost don't want to say because I have a tremendous love for my Protestant evangelical brothers and sisters. I was a, I was one. It's for the over bulk of what years. I was for my whole Christian life. But it almost makes me think that the Reformation of the 16th century was theologically another Tower of Babel incident because. 500 years, we have just this absolute fragmentation to the point now to where evangelical scholars are writing books about the death of truth and, and, and confessing that we've come to the point in the evangelical world, at least in America, where more and more Christians are simply saying, we can't know, and it doesn't matter. We can't know. Yeah, and maybe they're saying at a theological level, those things but more importantly a bunch of my friends who grew up in that world are like yeah. whatever it's just not worth it uh, on an existential level they bought into it and yeah. the point i'm making is that i was being led to see that the protestant that protestantism has no answer to the problem of division it has no answer to the problem of uncertainty for there to be one faith ultimately for there to be one faith one baptism one doctrine of salvation one church rather than thousands presenting different doctrines jesus jesus would have had to establish his church with some principle of divine authority on earth he would have had to have established his church with some method for preserving and transmitting the doctrines of the apostolic faith without error he could not this is the decision i was coming to or the realization he could not have simply handed the world an inspired book and said, Matt Swaim, do your best. And, and Ken Hensley, you do your best. Even the fact that he entrusted Matthew and Mark and Luke and John to be the communicators yeah. of these inspired things rather than just it being handed down by an angel shows a level of trust that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Which gets back to that whole image of the Father. You know, Hebrew says that he spoke his perfect word. You know, Jesus is the exact image of, of God's nature and the, the, you know, the radiance of his glory. The very fact that the Father sends his Son to the earth to speak and Jesus doesn't write anything. And the very fact that Jesus selects these, these apostles and he sends them and doesn't say, go out and write, but instead the Holy Spirit will lead you into all the truth, go and preach and teach the world. Yeah, it, it it can make you feel a little nervous, you know? Yeah, Jesus wrote one thing. It was in the yeah. sand when the yeah. woman was caught in adultery, and nobody thought after everybody walked away to go over and look at the sand and be like, I wonder what he just wrote over there. Nobody yeah. thought yeah. to do that. Come on. I would have thought to go do that. Maybe that's when Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Maybe <laughs> Not so. to, anyway, Maybe so. okay, my, my point is simply to say that whether one thinks the Catholic view of Scripture and tradition and how the two work together is true. I think that it's, I think that at least one should admit that it makes sense. 
It makes sense. And I want to close by reading again from Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution of divine revelation from Vatican II, and just listen to how this, how this makes sense. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it was put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. Okay, no denigration of scripture there. Continuing to read. And sacred tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their teaching. There's Paul in 2 Timothy. Sounds just like that. And then finally, it is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church, the teaching authority of the church, are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the other, working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. And this is where we need to pick up next week and go much deeper on the, on the third leg of that infamous stool of Scripture, Tradition, and the Magisterium, the Authoritative Church. So lots to get to in regard to that particular aspect of this yeah. question, and hopefully you're uh, hearing some things that are helping to round out um, your sense of what we mean uh, as Catholics when we talked about sacred tradition, uh, that it's not just, you know, this is the way that that guy did it, so that's the way that we do it. It's it's much deeper than that. So uh, if you enjoy what you're hearing, um, I encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel um, to get notified whenever new videos come out. And also, if you want to enjoy the discussion, uh, you can do that in the comments here on YouTube, but you can also uh, come and visit us in our online community, community.chnetwork.org. There are hundreds of people um, at various stages of interest in the Catholic faith, some who have come from other Christian backgrounds that are Catholic now. And then we're, we're discussing this kind of stuff all the time. So come visit us, uh, and you can also find lots of other stories and articles and videos and much more at chnetwork.org. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week.